Chapter 6, it says, Then Job answered and said, Oh, that my grief were fully weighed, and my calamity laid with it on the scales. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words have been rash. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. My spirit drinks in their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Does the wild donkey bray when it has grass? Or does the ox low over its fodder? Can flavorless food be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? My soul refuses to touch them. They are as loathsome food to me. Oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant me the thing that I long for, that it would please God to crush me, that he would loose his hand and cut me off, that I would still have comfort, though in anguish I would exult, he will not spare, for I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. What strength do I have that I should hope? And what is my end that I should prolong my life? Is my strength the strength of stones, or is my flesh bronze? Is my help not within me, and is, my, and is success driven from me? We'll pause there and begin. Remember, the story of Job begins describing Job's faith, and Job's family, and Job's fortune. And then it continues with a record of Job's trials and the reason for those trials. Job has lost everything. Three well-meaning friends arrive to offer comfort and support. Eliphaz, the Temanite, has responded to Job's tragic circumstance with a kind of caustic, acerbic accusation. He's going to question whether or not Job is really innocent at all, and he claims special insight, a mystical revelation that he thinks that God has given him in a dream. And Eliphaz exhorts Job to trust in the Lord and that the Lord will heal him and protect him and restore him if he would just simply repent, God would stop punishing him. Eliphaz believes that God afflicts the wicked And punishes the unjust. And so Job stands accused of crimes against God. You'll probably know that accusation generally falls into two different categories. Just and unjust. Things that we've really done and things that we're falsely accused of. And one of the things that this particular passage and the next chapter are going to do is give you insight on how to respond when unjust accusations are taking place. In chapter 6, Job is going to speak to his friends. In chapter 7, his attention and affection is going to be turned heavenward as he speaks to God. So Job will make his defense. He'll argue that the greatness of his sorrow has given him a right to complain in verses 1 through 7. He hopes that the Lord will take him or kill him in verses 8 through 13. He accuses his his friends of not being supportive or as being about as supportive as a dry brook that overflows in the spring or dries up um, with the heat in verses 14 through 21. 
And Job will challenge his critics to show him, look, here's what I just need you to to do. I need you to show me. I need you to tell me. I need you to point out where I went wrong or what I did wrong. And in verses 25 through 30, he'll basically say, you know what? You need to stop assuming that I'm guilty of something. So Job will appeal for understanding and sympathy. He will appeal for an opportunity to confront the Lord. He appeals to his basic integrity and faith in the Lord. And he'll reiterate his desire to die. By the way, does that shock you? Does it shock you that people in the Bible sometimes come to a place of such profound pain, of such inner darkness, of such deep despair that they actually think about ending their life? By the way, several characters in the Bible express similar times of personal affliction. Moses, Elijah, Jonah, just to name a few. In the book of Job, we're taught that we are to rely on God's word and God's resources so that we can have victory over Satan's schemes. We learn about the ministry of presence and how allowing people to ask questions why doesn't mean that we always know the answer to their questions. But sometimes we have to have enough sensitivity and compassion to be willing to listen to what people have to say. We learned that when attempting to help people in pain or people who are suffering, biblical truth is way more important than subjective feeling or personal experience, or personal opinion. And now we're introduced to the fact that when people are suffering, it's not a good idea to add to their burdens by accusing them of things that they're not guilty of, or by communicating false information, or by making untrue accusations. And this becomes important for any person who has ever been in a position where someone has come to you and said, could you please help me with something? Maybe it's just a sensitive ear or a supportive heart. But almost invariably, someone is going to come to you at some time in your life and they're going to want an explanation for their personal pain and their deep suffering and you have to ask this question, has God called you to be a source of encouragement or discouragement? To point people to Christ or away from Christ? By the way, in order to be a good counselor, it's going to require good timing. It's going to require great wisdom. It's going to require patience and kindness. Oh, by the way, and something else, more kindness. And a third thing, even more kindness. And did I say kindness? Let's look at verse 1. The weight of Job's suffering. Then Job answered and said, Oh, that my grief were fully weighed, and my calamity laid with it on scales. For then I would be... For they would be heavier than the sand of the sea. 
Therefore, my words have been rash. And when he says, hey, look, if I've spoken, it's because there's a great burden that's afflicting me. Remember, Eliphaz has spoken, and, and Job doesn't say, oh, excuse me, everything taken from me, all of my children killed, my health completely taken from me. He says, how do you calculate or quantify misery? And by the way, how do you? How do you take an invisible scale in order to provide an invisible weight that is going to be sufficient enough to bear the burden that is Job's anguish? Job wonders whether or not his friends can feel the weight of his sorrow. Whether or not they can understand and appreciate the weight of his grief and suffering and calamity. And remember, Job doesn't know. Job doesn't know about the spiritual warfare that's taking place in the heavens. He doesn't know about the conversation that has taken place between God and Satan. He doesn't know that he is being put forth as an example of a person who will love and trust and serve God during the most difficult of circumstances. You see, Job doesn't have access to the information that you have access to. The veil has been taken away from you. You know that you are in an invisible battle. You know that there is a host that's taking place in heaven that is fighting, that there's a bitter battle taking place, not only over your soul, but of all the souls of all of the people that you know. And as the battle has been waged and the battle has been won by the Lord Jesus Christ, that there is victory and hope. Job had no way of knowing what we studied in the last book in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. Remember, Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, Therefore, we don't lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, is, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. You see, as a Christian, you can say, there is pain and there is suffering and there is sorrow. And maybe I don't comprehend the nature or the extent of your grief. I know how it weighs down on your heart, but there is a weight of glory that's found in the person of Jesus Christ and his love, his sacrifice to you. But Job is going to talk about this bitterness This nauseous taste in his own mouth. Look at verse 4. It says, for the arrows of the Almighty are within me. My spirit drinks in their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Job feels like God has been using Job for target practice. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like there was a target that was placed either on your front or your back and you could see those arrows flying in in your direction? And this is what Job is saying. He's saying, "I, I feel like God's been using me for target practice and the arrows are tipped with poison and the poison arrows have lodged in my spirit and the wretched poison has caused ulcerations in the surface of my soul. Poisoned arrows that run the risk of causing bitterness. 
We all know about the Central and South American tribes that use curare. They dip their little darts and poison in order to cause paralysis. Now Job's friends are heaping insult and injury. Let me be blunt. Job notes that it feels like God is against him. And it's hard to even say that, isn't it? It's hard to say that Sometimes we feel like we wonder, Lord, where are you? Where, where are you when we lose our job? Where are you when the diagnosis of, of cancer comes in? Where are you when your husband has been unjustly fired from his job? Where are you, Lord? Where are you when, when things seem to disintegrate all around you? Where are you? And the Bible warns us of the dangers of bitterness In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, Paul says, Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, the writer says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. In the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah uses this exact same imagery. In Lamentations chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, Jeremiah writes, He hath bent his bow and set me as a mark for the arrow. He hath caused the arrows of his quiver to enter my reins. Reins is an old King James um, word for guts. Reins are the, the internal organs in the intestines that that determine your internal bodily function. It's, it, it's, the, it's a poetic way of saying, I feel like I've been gut shot. And by the way, when, when you've been gut shot, it isn't just your guts that hurt. Your, your hair, you could feel your hair. You, you, you think, how did I get nerves in my hair? Your hair hurts. Everything hurts. Bitternesses has been described like a cancer that feeds on healthy tissue. There was a very famous preacher named Harry Emerson Fosdick who wrote, Bitterness imprisons life. Love releases it. Bitterness paralyzes life. Love empowers it. Bitterness blinds life. Love anoints its eyes. And so Job is crying out. He's saying, it feels like God is against me. It feels like he's singled me out for a target. And then he says in verse 5, does the wild donkey bray when it has grass or does the ox low over its fodder? Here's what he's basically saying. The wild donkey and the ox cry when they're hungry for food. And doesn't it make sense to you that if an ox will cry and a donkey will cry when they're hungry for food, that a human being will cry for comfort and compassion and sympathy? Someone wrote, what Job needed were words of encouragement that would feed his spirit and give him strength. But all his friends fed him were words that were useless and tasteless. If his complaint sounded like a braying of a donkey or the lowing of an ox, it was because 
Like a starving animal, he was hungry for love and understanding. And sometimes we need to be very sensitive. Because someone might say something to you, and it sounds so painful. It might even sound bitter. And you have to ask and answer the question. Is this person starving for love, for affection, for sympathy, for sensitivity? And that's why he compares it to flavorless food. Can flavorless food be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? In verse 7, he says, my soul refuses to touch them. They are as loathsome food to me. A donkey can eat the grass or the ox can eat the grass. But do you understand what Job is saying? It's as if if food is placed underneath my nose, I'm nauseated. He, He compares his suffering to a tasteless meal. I refuse to touch it. It's like contaminated food. Some of you have had diagnoses in the past and you've had a rough go of it. You've had to go to the hospital or your mother, your father, your brother or your sister, your husband or your wife. And with the cancer diagnosis comes the possibility of radiation treatment. And they begin to tell you about the radiation treatment or the chemical treatment or whatever it is that's going on. And all of a sudden they begin to go through the treatment process and they become nauseated. That the sight or the sound or the smell of food makes them want to Throw up. And Job compares his suffering to a kind of a meal that's placed in front of him and he can't bring himself to swallow it. And so he continues with the void of of hopelessness. Look at what it says in verse 8. Oh, that I might have my request. That God would grant me the thing that I long for. That it would please God to crush me. That he would loose his hand and cut me off. Do you understand what Job is asking for? Job is asking God to kill him. This is the same request that Jonah makes as he's running for dear life. As he's trying to get away from God. And he finds himself on a ship. And the waves are crashing. And the people... understand that the ship is about to sink and they go down into the hall and they find Jonah sleeping and they say who are you and he goes I'm Jonah where do you come from I'm a Hebrew prophet what is it that you do well I speak for God and God has asked me to do something and I've refused to do it so you've caused this yes well what do you think we should do Jonah says I think you should throw me overboard Now remember when he did that, it was like committing suicide. When you're tossed overboard in the middle of the Mediterranean and you're literally scores of miles away from land, it's a death sentence. And so the people on the ship began to pray for Jonah and then pray for themselves because guess what? They were killing an innocent man. And so they cried out to to the God of Jonah and they said, please forgive us for killing this innocent person because... Well, you know, it's either him or us. (laughs) And they throw him overboard. And for all intents and purposes, he's going to die. He's swallowed by a sea creature. And he's taken to the shores of Nineveh where he's going to preach the gospel. Jonah wants to die. He isn't the first person who wants to die. 
Death seems better to him than the despised life that he's now living. McKenna mentions a book called The Savage God, A Study of Suicide. And in this book, it's a laundry list of famous people who have committed suicide. Socrates, Seneca, Cleopatra, Van Gogh, Virginia Woolf, Ernest Hemingway, Will Durant, Paul Tillich, the very famous theologian. And according to Camus, he says that suicide was their last great work of art. But of course, a lot of people want to romanticize suicide. But there's nothing romantic about it. There's nothing romantic about a dark, empty place inside of the human heart. Dostoevsky called it tomorrow's zero. When life has lost its meaning and immortality is no longer a hope. C.S. Lewis talked about it as that death which ends the dialogue. Jonah one. Jonah wanted to die, and Moses wanted to die, and Job desperately wants to be dead. In verse 10 it says, then I would still have comfort. Though in anguish I would exult, he will not spare, for I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. I want you to understand what you just read. Then I would still have comfort. Why would Job still have comfort? Why would he be comforted? Because remember, he's lost his wealth. He's lost his family. He's lost his health. What in fact would he be comforted by? Because he's maintained his integrity. That he didn't curse God. That he's been faithful to God. That in spite of all of this pain, in spite of all of this suffering, in spite of all of this loss. And so he's hoping that death will bring no more pain. And Job would at least have the comfort of knowing that in spite of the trial, he hasn't denied God, he hasn't cursed God, he could go to the grave, he could go to the grave knowing that he has a clear heart and a clean conscience. But this is one of those prayers that isn't going to be answered. Does that shock you and surprise you that You can pray a prayer and God doesn't answer your prayer. Oh, by the way, God answers every single prayer. The answer is either yes or no or wait. Even though the answer is no and it isn't the answer that you wanted, it still remains an answer. Job is saying, I haven't denied the words of the Holy One. When it says, For I have not concealed the words of the Holy One, it's an idiomatic expression which means, I haven't concealed. In, in other words, I have made known what God has made known to me. God has spoken to me, and I've spoken to people about what God has said. And then it also, I think, also means that He hasn't denied the Word or the words of the Holy One. Doubt and denial, and listen carefully are not in Job's heart. He isn't doubting God and he isn't denying God. Is he confused? Yes. Is it safe to say that he might even be a little bit angry? I think that that's safe. By the way, when your friends and your family, and even you, 
are a little bit confused. And you're a little bit angry about what's going on in your life. Do you think we should be generous with one another and patient with one another and kind with one another? Because in the midst of the anger and in the midst of the confusion, I think it's safe to say, hey, guess what? Welcome to the world in which we live in. Job could go to the grave. But Job is trying. Let me put it to you this way. Job isn't trying to be defensive. Job isn't hiding some secret sin. This is the transparent cry of a person who wonders what's happening and wonders why his friend has been so bitter in the betrayal and the accusation. But here's what Job says in verse 11. What strength do I have that I should hope? And what is my end that I should prolong my life? Do you understand what he's saying? Why should I go on living when I have no hope? As a matter of fact, later in chapter 7, verse 3, look what it says. So I have been allotted months of futility, and wearisome nights have been appointed to me. It's his way of saying, month after month, month after month, I have nothing to live for. Night after night brings me grief. Can you imagine Living during the day going, I have nothing to live for. And then you're at night and you go, I have nothing to live for. You live your life during the day and you go to bed at night and you wake up in the morning and you ask and answer the question, why am I even alive and why should I keep on go on living? Why shouldn't I just give up? Job is saying, I have no hope. Again, does that shock you? I feel like I don't have any hope. Do you remember when Paul the Apostle was caught up in a storm? He had left Caesarea after being on house arrests for two years. After a bitter, bitter struggle, he gives up and he exercises his Roman citizenship. He appeals to Caesar. He gets on a boat. A storm comes and the boat is getting ready to fall apart. In Acts chapter 27 verse 20, it says... When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. That's in Acts 27.20. We might think of hopelessness as that condition that's characterized by absolute despair With no expectation of good. In the Greek New Testament, the word is apolebzo. It's translated despair. Apo means away from. Elipzo means hope. And so the two words combined together mean to walk away or to be away from hope. The idea being there's no hope on the horizon. Why is this important to you and me? Because it's going to be the answer to a question that I suspect each and every one of you has asked. And that is, who is the person who's most likely to commit suicide? Why would a person commit suicide? Why would a person contemplate suicide? 
Now, everyone within the sound of my voice falls into the category of one of two categories. A person who's given it serious, serious thought. And a person who has maybe given it only a minimum amount of thought or little or no thought whatsoever. That's not something that you've ever really contemplated or thought about. And I suspect because you are listening, you weren't successful. But let me help you think it through. This is the person who feels like all of their options are gone. Those of you who know this person, or maybe you have even been this person, you know exactly what I'm talking about. This is the person who feels that all of their options are gone. Because life isn't an option. Going forward in the pain is not an option. The suffering is not an option. The torment is is not an option. The only option is left to die. And that's the hopelessness. Hopelessness thinking can be fatal. It's when you feel like all of your choices are gone. And all of your options are completely done away with. I read this week of a, of a man who was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. And when he and his wife found out about the, the debilitating diagnosis, they did what many couples do. They said, tell me about this disease and tell me what it looks like and tell me what we're going to need to do and, and tell me how this thing looks like it's going to unfold. And he gave him the bitter news that it's really not treatable, that there is no cure, and that it's going to result in paralysis. And there's going to be, at first, some shakes and some paralysis. And pretty soon, you're not going to be able to walk. And pretty soon, you're not going to be able to use your hands. And pretty soon, you're not going to be able to use your body. And pretty soon, all you're going to have is the functions in your head. And then then pretty soon, you're going to die. And the wife broke down in tears and she began to weep bitterly. And a doctor said that there's a treatment and that if your husband goes to Dallas, this is a treatment that might slow down the process but it's not going to eliminate the process. And so they were packing, they were getting ready to go and they were they were putting the together and, and 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 she's just right on the verge of breaking down and someone asks her a question about are are you ready to go and she said what choice do i have all of the pain and the anger and the bitterness just sort of welled up and she said what choice do i have and that's sometimes how people feel like they don't have a choice that the choice has been taken away from them And does it shock you or surprise you that Job has come to a place in his life where he doesn't feel like he has a whole lot of options and a whole lot of choices, but here becomes the important thing for each and every one of us. And that is, there's always a choice. There's always a choice. That no matter how dark and dismal and and deep the circumstances are, even if the choice boils down to, will I obey God or will I disobey God? Will I honor him or dishonor him? Will I trust him or not trust him? You always have a choice to love him and to trust him and to believe in him and count on him. 
In Psalm 119 verse 116 it says, Sustain me according to your promise and I will live. Do not let my hopes be dashed. David McKenna writes, Job knows that his prayer for death will go unanswered. He sinks down into his deepest despair and he realizes that more than his strength is gone. He has no hope within himself and his end is futile. That's when suicide seems like an option. But the Bible says for the Christian, it's never an option. It's always the wrong choice. It's never the right choice. The right choice is to love the Lord and trust the Lord and count on the Lord. In verse 12 it says, is my strength the strength of stones? Or is is my flesh bronze? This is Job's way of saying, what am I made of? Stone that I can weather whatever storm is coming? Am I iron man? I am Iron Man. Job is basically saying, I'm not Iron Man. It seems that my flesh is weak and temporal and that I'm subject to the limitations of what it means to be a human being. In verse 13 he says, Is my help not within me? And is success driven from me? It shouldn't come as a shock to you, and it shouldn't come as a surprise to you, that people in pain and suffering sometimes express helplessness and hopelessness. People without hope sometimes feel, like I said, that the choice has been taken from them. Warren Wiersbe writes, Prolonged and intense suffering can make a person feel powerless to handle life. And this can lead to hopelessness. If you can't control some of the elements that make up life, how can you plan for the future? Job asked, what strength do I have that I should have hope? What prospects that I should be patient? In other words, what am I waiting for? If someone says, hey, there's always tomorrow... And imagine that you're in such pain and suffering that all tomorrow seems to bring is even more pain. Wearsby rightly points out that hopelessness sometimes leads to a feeling of uselessness. And when you take those two things together, hopelessness and uselessness, it's a recipe for disaster. I once had a person call me and they were suicidal. And I knew that this person loved their, their pets. And I said to the person, if you kill yourself, who's going to feed your dog in the morning? And as stupid as it sounds, just the thought of her dog being left unattended was enough to give her the ability To wake up the next morning. Did it solve her depression? No. Did it completely do away with despair? No. But sometimes people need an excuse. To live for one more hour. Or even one more day. 
And over and over again, Job is going to express his, his, his desire to die. By the way, it's already happened in chapter 3, verse 20. It's happened here. It's going to happen in chapter 7, verses 15 and 16. Chapter 10 and verses 18 and 19. Chapter 14 and verse 13. And I can't do this over and over again. So this is my suicide speech. And now I'm done. Okay. Now. Well, maybe I'm almost done. I have to ask you one more question. Have you ever felt like you wanted to die? Because depending on the answer, I want you to just put yourself in Job's position just for a moment. Job is in terrible pain and horrible suffering. His friends are healthy, no doubt wealthy, no doubt comfortable. And I'm going to suggest to you that just for a split moment, just for a, a, a brief moment, they have, may have lost their ability to understand and sympathize with a person who wakes up every morning to a world of pain and suffering. So let me just encourage you just for a moment that almost invariably you're going to come in contact with someone who I've already mentioned is going to be suffering Job-like experiences. They're going to wake up every morning to a world of pain and suffering. And your compassion and sensitivity might be challenged. Particularly when the person says to you, I want relief from this pain. And I want relief from this suffering. And remember what we've already talked about. Is it wrong to want relief from pain and suffering? It is not. But when a person is in pain and suffering, is it ever a good idea to just tell them, yeah, go ahead and kill yourself? Yeah, that's always a bad idea. Let's go on record and say that. It's always a bad idea because God is our source. He's the rock of our salvation. He is an ever-present help in time of need. Here's what we have permission to do, to cry out to God. But we don't have permission To blame God, or curse God, or reject God. Psalm 61 verses 1 through 3 says, Hear my cry, O God, attend unto my prayer. From the end of the earth I'll cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in your presence forever. And the moment that you start talking like that and praying like that, a sense of hope begins to well up inside of your heart. But Job isn't done. He's going to talk about the ineffective ministry and the disappointment of ineffective ministry. Look at verse 14, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter. To him who is afflicted, kindness should be shown by his friend. Even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty, my brothers have dealt deceitfully like a brook, like the streams of the brooks that pass by, which are dark because of the ice, and into which the snow vanishes. When it is warm, they cease to flow. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. Their paths of their way turn aside. They go nowhere and perish. The caravans of Tima look. The travelers of Sheba hope for them. 
They're disappointed because they were confident. They, can't, they come there and are confused. For now you are nothing. You see terror and are afraid. Did I ever say, bring something to me? Or offer a bribe for me from your wealth? Or deliver me from the enemy's hand? Or redeem me from the hand of oppressors? Teach me and I'll hold my tongue. Cause me to understand wherein I have erred. How forceful are right words. But, does your, but what does your arguing prove? Do you intend to rebuke my words and the speeches of a desperate one which are as wind? Yes, you overwhelm the fatherless and you undermine your friend. Now, therefore, be pleased to look at me. I want to pause there just for a moment and reread it and let it sink into you. Now, therefore... Please to look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Look me in the face, Job is saying. Look into my eyes. Look at me. For I would never lie to your face. Yield now. Let there be no injustice. Yes, concede my righteousness still stands. Is there injustice on my tongue? Cannot my taste discern the unsavory? In verse 14, when he says, To him who is afflicted, Kindness should be shown by his friend, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Not that Job has forsaken the fear of the Almighty, but people in pain and people who are suffering and people in in need need kindness. Job is afflicted. He's looking for sympathy. He's looking for compassion. He's looking for wisdom. He's looking for counsel. But he's looking for kindness. You know, kindness has been called the most elementary evidence of spirituality. Someone said the kindest word in the world is the unkind word that's been left unsaid. I like that. Kindness is a language that the dumb can speak and the deaf can hear. Franklin Roosevelt faced the challenge of a great depression and a great war. And he told our mothers and our fathers, human kindness has never weakened the stamina or softened the fiber of a free people. A nation doesn't have to be cruel in order to be tough. And neither do you. You don't have to be cruel in order to be tough. Abraham Herschel said one of the most important things I've ever heard. He said, when I was young, I used to admire intelligent people. Now I admire kind people. Isn't that good? I used to admire intelligent people, but now I admire kind people. By the way, can people pretend to be smart? I think that they can. And can they pretend to be smart in a convincing way? Let's just for purposes of discussion say, can a person pretend to be kind? Maybe, a little. But can a person pretend to be kind over and over and over and over again? I don't think so. You see, I think kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. Remember, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness. 
Job said, I need you to be kind. But instead he's received bad advice. And instead he's received rebuke. And instead he's received condemnation. And he feels betrayed. He feels abandoned. He feels let down. He might even feel a little bit forsaken. Exactly like some of you. When you were in pain and you were in trouble. And you needed someone to listen to what you had to say. And you needed someone to understand. And be kind. Now Job will make several charges against his friends. And their lack of true friendship. I'm going to go over it quickly. And then we're going to just say a few words. Number one. Job's friends should have been devoted and kind in verse 14. And number two. Job's friends proved undependable and unreliable in verses 15 through 17. Job's friends proved useless and unhelpful in verses 21 through 23. Job's friends failed to show him where he went wrong. Or what he did wrong. To warrant this kind of suffering in verse 24. And then Job's friends had a combative and argumentative spirit in verses 25 through 27. And in in number six, Job's friends failed to look him in the eye in verse 28. And number seven, Job's friends had one great need. They needed to shut up. They needed to stop talking. They needed to stop arguing. And so in verse 15 it says, My brothers have dealt deceitfully like a brook, like the streams of the brooks that pass away. In other words, Job likens the ministry of Eliphaz to a brook that holds out hope for a thirsty traveler but fails to deliver. And you've all seen images of people crossing a desert and they would under no circumstance cross the desert if they thought even for a moment they didn't have enough water to do it. Can you imagine crossing a vast desert and you come to the middle of the desert and you have no water, but you have good assurance that a river or a brook or a stream is going to be flowing. And so he's using this illustration because they're living in the middle of a desert and there's nothing worse than an undependable, unreliable source of water. Job is looking for sympathy. He's looking for understanding. Yes, even pity. Perhaps just some morsel. Just a scrap of kindness. In verse 16 it says, Which are dark because of the ice and into which the snow vanishes. Imagine like you're in the middle of a desert and you see the mirage. It looks like water and you walk towards it only to get there and it's not there. When it is warm, they cease to flow. The heat has caused the wadi to go dry. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. The paths of their way turn aside. They go nowhere and perish. The caravans of Tima, look, why? Eliphaz is a Temanite. And where is this place? It's Saudi Arabia. And what have they done? They've crossed the desert in order to provide comfort and hope. And when they were crossing the desert, I'm sure that they were looking for water. And so he's appealing to the reality of the real world in which this person lived. The travelers of Sheba hope for them. People who cross deserts need streams. And people who are suffering, people who are in pain, people who are hurting, they need hope. There are two kinds of people in the world. 
I know what you think I'm going to say, Italian people and people who wish they were. And that's true. But there's two other kinds of people in the world. People who have hope. And people who need hope. And you really do fall into one of those two categories here tonight. You're a person who has hope. Or a person who needs hope. And if you have hope. I'm going to encourage you to give it away. And if you need hope. I'm going to encourage you to ask for it. That's exactly what Job is saying. Look in verse 20, it says, They are disappointed because they were confident. They come there and they're confused. They're confident that if they cross the desert, they're going to find the stream. But what happens when it's not there? They become confused. So why should you blame me that I'm confused when I needed help and I needed hope and I needed some moisture, some living water that was going to give me a sense of hope. We know in the New Testament that that living water is the power of the Holy Spirit that comes inside of a believer when they come into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, people who are in pain, they need hope. And I got to tell you something. The Bible says that the source of hope is the word of God and the promises of God. And the source of hope is God himself and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if a person needs hope, doesn't it make sense to you that you would offer them Christ? Here's what he says. Only a fool would attempt to cross the desert without knowing where the water sources are. As a matter of fact, one translation says they are ashamed because they had been confident of finding water, but when they got there, they're frustrated. And in verse 21, it says, For now you're nothing. You see terror and are afraid. Another translation, So this is what you have now become to me, for now you are nothing. This is what you become to me. Here's what Job is saying. I needed grace. I needed mercy. I needed comfort. I needed help. I needed hope. And now you know what you are. You're nothing. When you see something dreadful, you're afraid. What is he suggesting? He's suggesting that instead of giving him hope, they're looking at him and they're secretly thinking, oh my God, I hope this never happens to me. Oh my God, he's lost everything. Oh my God, it's gone. Oh my God, his children are dead. Oh my God, he has an incurable disease. Oh my God, I hope it doesn't happen to me. By the way, is that helpful when a person's in pain? For you to look at him and go, thank God it's not happening to me. Someone said, you know, I heard the story of a, of a person who, who came up to another person who says, Excuse me, I haven't eaten anything in three days. And the person said, oh, look, I just had a Subway sandwich. Trust me, food still tastes the same. Do you suppose that was what the person was looking for? Confirmation that food was still good? In verse 22, he says, did I ever say, bring something to me? 
or offer a bribe for me from your wealth, or deliver me from the enemy's hand, or redeem me from the hand of the oppressor. When he's saying these things, he's basically saying, you know me, you know who I am, you know what I've done. Have I ever said to you, give me something? In other words, does Job sound to you like a person who's looking for a handout? Did Job ever go to anyone and say, hey, could you give me 50 bucks just to tide me over to the next paycheck? Have I ever asked for anything? Offer a bribe from me for your wealth. Did I try to take advantage of other people or expand my wealth through nefarious ways or ill-gotten gains? Deliver me from the enemy's hand. That I have enemies and I needed your help because I'd antagonized someone or redeemed me from the hand of oppressors. Job is saying, look, I've never asked for special treatment. I've never asked for special favors. In verse 24, teach me and I'll hold my tongue. Look, Job will make two requests. Teach me. And then again in verse 28, look at me. Teach me. If, if, I've, if I've made a mistake, instruct me. Show me the evidence. Help me understand. Verse 25, how forceful are right words, but what does your arguing prove? Do you intend to rebuke my words and the speeches of a desperate one which are as wind? In other words, show me where I've gone wrong. Show me where I've missed the mark. Show me where I've fallen short. Are the speeches of a desperate one which are when? In other words, am I just blowing hot air? Am I saying something and it has no meaning to you? Yes, you overwhelm the fatherless and you undermine your friend. Now, therefore, be pleased to look at me, for I would never lie to your face. How interesting. Look at me. It's his way of saying, look me in the eye. But I think it's something else. Wearsby points out the difficulty of looking at people in pain. He writes, I can recall visiting patients who were difficult to look at because of the disease or because of the accident or because of the surgery And sometimes they were difficult to listen to because they had become bitter. From my eye contact and my responses to their words, they could detect whether or not I really cared about them. It did little good for me to quote scripture and pray unless we had first built a bridge between our hearts. Then we could minister to each other. Job is in effect saying, I need you you to look at me. I need you to look at me in my circumstances, and I need you to look me in the eye. And by the way, this is an oriental expression. The oriental expression is, I'm not lying. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not hiding anything. Look in my eye. See that I'm being sincere in what I'm saying. Look at me. Sympathize. Be sensitive. Be willing to take a second look. I'm not lying. Job is in effect saying, I'm not lying. And and look what it says in, in verse 29. Stop arguing. Yield now. Let there be no injustice. Yes, concede my righteousness still stands. Here's what he's basically saying. I'm begging you. I'm begging you. I've lost everything that I have. I've lost my children. I've lost my health. The only thing I have left, the only thing that I have left, is my integrity. 
And now you're asking me to give that up as well. And he's basically saying, please don't ask me to do that. When he says, yield now, let there be no injustice. Yes, concede my righteousness. When, you, when we read my righteousness, we might be tempted to think that it's a boast or that it's a transparent boast or it's some sort of self-righteous boast. But we've already read at the beginning of Job, God himself in, his, in heaven has said, have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him? I'm going to suggest to you that I'm not like him. I won't speak for you because maybe you are perfect. Maybe you have complete righteousness. But Job is basically saying, this is all I have. Please don't ask me to give it up. He's saying, stop arguing. Stop falsely accusing me. Stop being so unjust. And in verse 30, he says, is there injustice on my tongue? Cannot my taste discern the unsavory? Why is Job upset? He's suffering. Why is he upset? He's been accused of some dark secret sin that he hasn't committed. He refuses to admit in something that in good conscience he can't admit to. And so he's going to stay true to his conscience. You know... Sometimes comfort, what begins with comfort, continues with counsel. And counsel can sometimes be very helpful. Counsel can be supportive. It can be helpful. It can be encouraging. It can be life-giving. It can be enriching. But a false accusation is like pouring salt into an open wound. And so, what do you suppose is involved in true friendship? People who really care about one another and people who support each other and encourage one another. Doesn't it make sense to you that whatever friendship means, it has to mean what the New Testament says, that we're to speak the truth in love to one another. Speaking the truth in love. The New Testament also says, remember in one of the most quoted verses of all of the New Testament, be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Even as Jesus Christ the Lord has forgiven you. Job was looking for kindness. He was looking for tenderness and comfort and pity and understanding. But he was looking for something else as well. He was looking for hope. He was looking for hope. And the morsel of hope that he clung to was the reality that he really did love the Lord with his heart and with his soul. You know, hope in the New Testament is, is a Greek word, ellipsis. It's a word that means a favorable and confident expectation as it relates to the future. We know that the Bible says these three things abide. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. 
Because it is possible, it is possible that there's an unfavorable and not so confident expectation about the future. But in order to hold on to hope, you have to hold on to the author of hope. By the way, just in closing, what do you suppose Job's friends could have given Job? What could they have given him? Could they have given him a few sheep to tide him over? Could they have given him a little grain? Could they have given him some medicine? Could they offer to perhaps provide the best doctors that were available? I think that they could have done all of those things. Would it have been helpful? I think so. But is it a physical provision that Job needs the most? No. He needs hope. And remember, if there's only two kinds of people in the world, those who have hope and those who need hope, he's feeling like he's been left totally alone. But he needs prayer. And he needs merciful words. And don't underestimate the power of prayer. And don't underestimate mercy. And don't underestimate kindness. And don't underestimate hope. Now remember, in chapter 6, Job speaks to his friends. In chapter 7, Job is going to make his case. And he's going to begin a dialogue or a prayer. In a very real sense, he's going to begin a discussion. Who you begin to sense, even as you hear him speak, that he's no longer speaking to Eliphaz, he's speaking to God. And we'll join him when we meet again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that God in his grace and his mercy puts in our path people who need hope and people who have hope. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for the person of Jesus and the hope that we have in Christ. A hope that no matter how difficult the pain, no matter how horrible the suffering, no matter how dark the circumstances, that we have a revelation unknown to Job. That even though our outward person is perishing, our inward person is being renewed day by day. And that even though the physical circumstances of our our life may be completely done away with, we have a hope in heaven. Rooted, grounded, forever established in the person of Jesus. And like the song says... Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Lord, cause us to trust you and to lean on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.